Let me open us with some words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Join me in prayer. Lord, so we commit ourselves to you this morning. Lord, we put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, the assurance that you have not destined us for wrath but, Lord, that you have secured us for yourself. Help us to live as children of the day, children of the light, even in these days. Lord, be pleased with our worship this morning. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn to the letter of James. The letter of James. We are studying this letter, this earliest work of Christian literature, this earliest of New Testament documents, the letter of James. And this morning I want to read to you what would seem like a longer passage. There are really three paragraphs here, beginning in James chapter 4, verse 11, and going all the way through chapter 5, verse 6. They will sound like three different topics, three different subjects, but I will show you how I understand them to be related. But we begin in James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. 
So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and you will eat your, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Lord, once again, we ask for your blessing as we open up our hearts to your word. Grant us understanding and insight that we would know how you, are, you would have us to apply these things in our own lives, in our daily walks before you. In your name we ask this, amen. In James chapter four, verses seven through 10, James has provided the only remedy for these divisions and fractures in our being. We are people, the whole human race, every member of the human race has divisions in his or her soul. And the only remedy for these is radical repentance, which begins and ends with humbling ourselves before God. This call to radical repentance is the peak of James's letter. It really stands as the crescendo of everything that he writes here. And now in Chapter 4, verse 11, he begins to slowly come down from the peak with three warnings here in these three paragraphs, beginning with chapter 4, verse 11, and ending in chapter 5, verse 6. These are three rebukes to pride. Three rebukes against pride. Now, as I said, they look like three different and maybe even unrelated topics. In the first paragraph, he talks about speaking evil against one another and judging one another. Then beginning in chapter 4, verse 13, he talks about this sin of boasting about tomorrow, operating as if God has no part of our plans and operations in life. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, James confronts this abuse of others through power and wealth. But they are all linked together by pride. In chapter 4, verse 6, let me show you how this works. In chapter 4, verse 6, James declares that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Because at the root of our duplicity and all of the conflict the love with the world that comes out of that duplicity at its root is pride. So James demonstrates then what humble looks like. If God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, James 
demonstrates what being humble looks like. It is a repentance that starts with, in verse 7, submit yourselves to God and ends in chapter 4, verse 10, with humble yourselves before the Lord. But what does it look like to persist in pride? To live as someone who is exalting his self or herself. What does it look like to live in ways that continue in friendship with the world and in opposition toward God instead of receiving God's grace? So these three rebukes address three samples of proud living. And the rebukes escalate in intensity. He begins with, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Then he says, come now, you who say, in verse 13. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, come now, you rich, weep and howl. You can see how the warnings, the rebukes become more intense as James goes. But there's one other thing that links these three rebukes together, and that is that each of these rebukes is focused on eternity. Each one of them considers eternity. Each rebuke looks forward to the last days or the day of reckoning before God. And so James's perspective here as he talks about pride is the ultimate consequence of pride. First of all, we find a rebuke to the pride of slander. So there are three rebukes here, three rebukes to pride so that we will humble ourselves before the Lord so that we can, we can have our eyes opened to the pride that's at the root of our duplicity. And the first is a rebuke to the pride of slander, verses 11 and 12. First, James commands us to not speak evil against one another or slander one another. The word means simply to tear someone down with words. Those words, the slander, may be in public. It may be in private. It may be directly to a person, or it may be behind their backs without them knowing. It may be a blunt insult. It may be name-calling, Slander may be subtle insinuation that undermines somebody. But the word slander covers all of these things. And the issue, according to verse 11, is that slandering a brother or sister in Christ is judging them. That is to judge them. And I'm not much of a gardener. My wife is the green thumb in our family, and she will tell you I'm not much of a gardener. In fact, I can look at a flower bed, and a lot of times I won't even know the difference between the weeds and the things I want to keep in the garden. When we come to verses like these that talk about judging one another, we have to do a little weeding. 
Because our culture has cluttered a clear understanding of judging others with some wrong ideas that are like weeds in the garden. In other words, it's hard to understand and apply what James is actually commanding us if we don't first identify the weeds or the baggage that the world brings into some of these words like judging one another. Our culture often claims, don't judge me. I even hear non-Christians attempting to quote scripture in their own defense, don't judge lest you be judged, by which they actually are saying, don't infringe on my life with any standards, with any kind of moral absolutes of right and wrong. If you do that, you're judging me and you don't have any right to judge me. And it kind of becomes a throwback in your face and my face of quoting our own scriptures at us and saying, see, your own, your own Bible, your own Christian faith says don't judge one another. And so if you say, for example, homosexuality is sin, it is morally wrong, you are being judgmental. If you confront anyone for immorality, You are judgmental. And of course, being judgmental means you are being unloving. And so judging others gets torqued a little bit. And what love really is, is also changed, contorted. The problem with this thinking is that the Bible very clearly commands us to discern, to judge That is one of the uses of this word, to discern or to distinguish. In other words, we have to distinguish, we have to judge between right and wrong. To discriminate, to judge between truth and falsehood. For example, there are other scriptures that tell us this. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil... Hold fast to what is good. You can't abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good if you can't distinguish between the two. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That word distinguish is the same word judge that James uses in James chapter 4. To distinguish good from evil. And what about 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 12? Where the apostle Paul asked the Corinthian church. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Same root word. Paul here is calling the church to remove someone from fellowship because of blatant immorality, and he actually takes the church to task for tolerating it, for not judging. A right judgment would be to remove the person who is unrepentant of sin. So there is a right way of judging. There is a right and a need 
to distinguish right from wrong, to call sinful what God calls sinful, and there is a need to even confront immorality and not tolerate it. But there is also a kind of judging that the Bible rebukes, that the Bible confronts. And that is the kind of judging that James is talking about here. And to be completely honest, it is the kind of judging that we tend to neglect to deal with because we find ourselves busy trying to pull out the weeds of the wrong ideas that we never get around to really hearing what the Bible says to us about what judging one another really is. This judging is the act of placing ourselves above others, criticizing and condemning them, discriminating against them. It is the very sin that James has already confronted back in chapter 2 when he talks about partiality. If you favor the rich person who comes into your assembly over the poor person, James writes in chapter 2, verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It is what Jesus commands us to not do in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. According to James, slandering each other is a form of judging each other. And when we slander, when we judge one another, we slander the law and we judge the law. How so? Because the law's central command is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. To love our neighbor. So to slander and judge our neighbor is to defy the law by sitting in judgment on it. It is to usurp the law's authority to condemn others. Now that may or may not be using the law in a way to condemn others, and maybe any form of condemnation or discrimination. But even if we discriminate, if we judge one another, take chapter 2 as an example, a wealth over poverty, if we favor or show partiality to the rich person over the poor person, that is not using the law but it is sitting in authority over the law. It is usurping its authority. That's what James is saying. Even more, by doing so, you are not a doer of the law. This is like a synonym to being a doer of the word. You can't be a doer and a judge. Ultimately, by usurping the authority of the law, we usurp the authority of the only one lawgiver and judge, verse 12, who is able to save and destroy. One day, God will save or condemn to destruction, 
And so he alone holds the authority even now to condemn, to judge. Now think about this. James's command is to not slander each other. When we do, it is this judging, defiance, usurping that is really going on behind the slander. So you see behind slander is pride, self-exaltation. When you tear someone down with an insult, with an insinuation, whether that's directly to a person or whether it's behind their back, you are exalting yourself even over and against God himself. It has no place among brothers and sisters in Christ. So pride produces slander. It is behind slander. And that is one sample then of pride, is slandering one another because we condemn one another within the courtrooms of our own hearts and minds. Secondly, James offers a rebuke to the pride of presumption. The pride of presumption. So there is the pride of slander, and now there is a rebuke to the pride of presumption. Verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James is addressing the businessman or the businesswoman who would travel to conduct their business. The problem here is not making plans, nor is the problem the hopes or the goal of making a profit. That's the point of trade. That's the point of business. The problem is doing so presumptuously. It is presuming that your life and well-being are in your own hands. This is pride. Verse 16, James says, it is boasting in arrogance. There are two reasons this is arrogant. Two reasons, really, that it is self-deception, that we are blind if we do this. The first is, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. It's ignorance. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Hey, none of us has enough control over his or her life to know what will happen 10 minutes from now, let alone tomorrow. Not only can we not determine the circumstances of our lives, we can't even see them. We don't even know what they will be. Tomorrow is hidden from you and from me. How many of you have been reminded recently that you're not in control of your life? How many of us expected to endure for nine months going on, probably will go on to a year, a pandemic? 
It's a great illustration of what James is saying to us here. So we are ignorant. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. Secondly, we are fragile. We're fragile. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. A mist or a vapor. This describes a warm breath on a cold day. It's that breath you see hang in the air for simply a moment and then vanish. It's what James is saying. Each of our lives amounts to that. Now, he's not talking about human dignity or worth here. He's talking about the frailty of human existence. He's talking about the fact that our lives are not secure in and of themselves. Not one of us has the power or the authority to secure our own lives. They are here today and gone tomorrow. Your life, my life, appear, vanish all in the span of a breath. What makes us think that we can calculate without God? That we can leave God out of the equation when we are making plans for life? What makes us think that we can make plans and boast as if we're actually in charge of our lives? Pride. Pride, arrogance. James gives us the right alternative in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In today's Christianity, we've tended to reduce this to Lord willing. That's what we say, right? Yeah, we'll we'll come over tomorrow, Lord willing. We just kind of tag that on to things, which I'm afraid we treat a bit like a good luck charm. Kind of has become a cliche almost for us. We tag it onto things we say, almost like we would say, knock on wood. We'll come over tomorrow, knock on wood. Lord willing. We want to make sure that we don't jinx our plans. So we say, Lord willing, on top of it. But it's the life's perspective that matters. What matters is whether you really calculate with or without God. I know not everyone who says, Lord willing, says it mindlessly or as a cliche. But what really matters is this perspective. Because if you calculate with God, you are humbly realizing that all of your plans are subject to him. Listen to what the scriptures say, specifically the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 9. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 27, verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, 
for you do not know what a day may bring forth. That's what James is saying, isn't he? We're not in control of these things. And the sooner that we recognize God's sovereign working in the circumstances of life, the sooner we will know security because of him and not our own plans in which we boast. We know better. We know better. If this were asked us on a quiz, we would check the right box. We would choose the right multiple choice answer. But again, the way we live is often fractured. As it is, James says, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. To be preoccupied with life's affairs in such a way that we neglect God is a subtle pride. I don't think any of us sit down and think, you know what, I'm just going to leave God out of this equation. I'm going to make these plans without. We just function that way. We function independently of God. We leave him out of it. We neglect it. James says, that's arrogance. To live with such arrogant presumption fails to acknowledge the sovereignty of God over our life's pursuits and to acknowledge our desperate need for him. So we should say, Lord willing, but we ought to say it with a very conscious humility that if I'm putting these plans before the Lord, these are the plans we're making These are all before the Lord, though. And we're going to follow him. So there is a rebuke to the pride of presumption. Lastly, there is a rebuke to the pride of wealth. To the pride of wealth. Here, more than anywhere, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, James sounds like the prophets of the Old Testament. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He's employing a theme from the Old Testament scriptures by comparing these two representative people. The rich, who is the wicked oppressor, someone who, because of his his wealth, has developed pride and a hard heart against God and opposes God and oppresses the poor. The poor then is the righteous person who is oppressed and cries out to God for help. Just like planning and just like making profits in business weren't the real issues in the verses before this, it was presumption So here the rebuke is not really about having wealth in and of itself, but how riches corrupt the heart and feed our pride and feed our self-delusion. Weeping and howling are the right responses to the miseries that are coming. And first, James identifies a misery that is coming in the betrayal of hoarded wealth. 
the betrayal of hoarded wealth. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. So your wealth, your clothes, your gold, your silver, your money, your possessions, they are being consumed. They are being consumed. And there is nothing you can do to stop it. More, more, more. Accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. James is saying the more you grasp, the more you hoard, the more it escapes you and the more deterioration and corrosion you're carrying. And the hoarding will even turn on you. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now this term evidence takes us to what imagery? The courtroom, standing before God, the seat of the judge. And instead of saving you, rising up to exonerate you before the judge, instead of providing you with security, the corrosion The corruption of everything you've accumulated, your wealth will stand against you to condemn you in your greed. And this phrase, eating your flesh like fire, is a way of saying that God's judgment on you will mirror the consuming of your wealth. In the same way that your wealth is consumed with corrosion and deterioration, your life will be consumed by God's judgment. That's the picture. Verse 3 summarizes the tragedy. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You've laid up wealth on the brink of eternity. In the last days, the final stage in God's program for history, instead of investing in the eternal, the rich person has laid up treasure, has accumulated wealth. They have put their hope in the power and in the self-exaltation that is bought with money. And they have never humbled themselves before God. So there is this betrayal then of hoarded wealth. It will betray you. It will stand as evidence against us. Secondly, there is the condemnation then of fraudulent wealth. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Not only does the rich person here hoard wealth, but he gains it by cheating those who work his land out of their rightful wages, those who mow the fields, those who harvest the crops. This was a big deal. This was a matter of life and death for those who worked the land. 
And though your wealth may empower you, James says, to thwart justice for the moment, the Lord knows. The Lord hears the cries of those wages you've stolen. And what's more, the Lord hears the cries of the harvesters themselves, the ones you've cheated. And he is the Lord of hosts, that is, the Lord of armies. He has the authority and the power and the armies to set things right. And he will work a great reversal. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The day of slaughter is the day of judgment. It is the culmination of the last days. Let me ask you, which pig has the better chance of escaping slaughter? The scrawny, deprived pig or the fat one that's indulged itself? Yet here is the absurdity of greed. The greedy, wealthy person says, the more I feed myself, the more I indulge myself, the fatter I get, the safer I am on the day of slaughter. That's the absurdity of hoarding wealth. That's the absurdity of the greed that cheats others out of what is rightfully theirs. That is the absurdity of self-deception. Now, in our country, I know that most of us probably hearing this are not thinking of ourselves as wealthy. But of course, on a scale across the world, we are the wealthiest nation that has ever existed in the history of the world. Is James saying something to us about our tendency toward materialism, toward the love of things, toward the gaining and accumulation. It's not sin or wrong to have a good job, to make a good income. We're called upon God to to live our lives in ways that are honoring him, to work hard, to make a living, to support our own families, support life, to be generous, to give to others. But man, do we need to hear this warning. How greatly we need to hear James stand up and give this scathing, scathing rebuke to the amassing of wealth and to the dishonesty and the fraud that accommodates this greed. This is pride. James concludes, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the final indictment. You have sentenced the righteous person, the person who's innocent in this matter, You have sentenced that person to death, which 
is murder. He does not resist you. In other words, he cannot resist you. He has no means to resist or to defend himself. So the pride of wealth also is self-exaltation. It is a self-exaltation that is built on the power that riches give to a person in this life. But the greed is bringing judgment. The pride is bringing judgment. So I hope you can now see how these three paragraphs really are all related. They're all related. Not only by this this thread of pride and arrogance. The very pride that James says, God will oppose. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Maybe these samples are meant to be some test cases for us to see if we really are fitting within the repentance that James describes in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 4, submitting ourselves to God, humbling ourselves before God so that he may exalt us, instead of exalting ourselves. Maybe these samples are meant to be measures, test cases for each of us to see if we are really humbling ourselves. Are we living in pride, self-deluded, self-deceived? And I hope you also see now how each of these rebukes to pride anticipates the approaching day of judgment. Do you see how James mentions that in each of these instances? The last days, the day of slaughter. It is a day that James sees as not something out in the future that's going to happen, as something that is right on the brink of happening. For James, this is imminent. So these are three rebukes to pride then, to warn us, to alert us to the blind spots so that we can humble ourselves before God, to repent, to turn from these things, to have them exposed, not only what we're doing, but what is going on in our hearts behind them, the presumptuousness the judgmentalism, the greed. Those are the things that we must be alert to. And hear James's loving, passionate rebuke to our pride. Lord, we, we come to you now and, and repent. Every one of us, if honest with ourselves, if not self-deluded, can identify the working of pride in our lives, the working of self-exaltation, putting ourselves on the thrones of our lives, which is really self-worship, which is idolatry, which is friendship with the world instead of friendship with God. 
So Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, show us grace. Call us to yourself. Help us to be broken and contrite over the ways that pride dominates our lives. In your name we ask these things, asking them with joy and expectation because of the power of the gospel that is at work in our lives.